0: By the time I got into radio, it was already nearing its demise. It was still a fantastic job, don't get me wrong. The business as a whole was just well past its prime. XM Satellite Radio launched in late 2001, while Sirius Satellite Radio kicked off a few months later in 2002. In 2008, the two merged, and in 2011, they became Sirius XM. People fought the idea of paying for radio, some still do. When satellite radio first became an enemy, my whole thing was, hey, people still want local. They want to hear from local DJs who talk about things familiar to them. And that's true, to an extent. However, when you put the two types of radio side by side, even with the $14.99 a month subscription fee, it's hard for terrestrial radio to compete. On one hand, you have hours of uninterrupted music, a bigger playlist, Unedited songs, the ability to flip to any type of music you like at any time, rewind, skip, and fast forward. Then, in the other hand, you have three or four songs and a block of commercials, the same commercials and the same songs over and over. There's no comparison, but still, some folks stick with what they know and what feels comfortable for them. But like I said, I miss the heyday of radio by at least a decade. I would go in to do a shift on one station, and then head over to another station, switch my name and my attitude, and then when I was done, pre-record a show for the next day. You'd be driving around on a Sunday listening to me from the night before. I can't tell you how many times I must have mentioned something during the evening before, that when played the next day made absolutely no sense. Rock 103 WIQB, I certainly hope you're out enjoying this beautiful sunny day. Coming up next, we have three doors down. Except you're driving through a thunderstorm, and I sound like an idiot. Broadcasting companies, the few that remained after squeezing out or buying out the mom and pop stations, want to save money any way they can. That's why you hear so many syndicated shows nowadays, and your favorite local DJ could also be the favorite local DJ in a city a thousand miles away. I'm not here to bash Terrestrial Radio. It gave me almost 15 great years of free concerts, announcing bands on stage in front of thousands of listeners, interviewing people, tons of free merchandise, and some lifelong friendships. I'd probably go back in a heartbeat despite everything I just mentioned. No, I'm not bashing it. I'm just feeling sentimental. Sentimental for a time when radio was the form of entertainment. Sentimental for a time when I wasn't even alive. Heck, even my dad wasn't alive. And he is so old. Just kidding. He listens. I love you, Dad. Even 30 years ago, disc jockeys had personality. You tuned into a radio show for the host almost as much as the music. What would he or she say next? What embarrassing thing would they make the interns do? Who were they interviewing? I had every intention to be one of those DJs, but at some point, the restrictions of a tiny music library time-limited talking breaks, and a hotline that rang every time you didn't stay on task, it just started feeling like a job. You've heard me whine about my move to Detroit, a bigger market, a new rung on the radio ladder. The job I took was going to be my dream job, producing the morning show of the legendary Dick Purton. Finally, I could create and write bits, work with the amazing staff to come up with content, and stare out at some of my radio idols every morning from 6 to 10 a.m., Then they forced Mr. Purton into retirement, and I got shuffled off to another station in the cluster. The number one station in Detroit. Sounds awesome, right? No. It was awful. The pressure, the horrible expletive of a boss, everyone thinking they were rock stars themselves, down to the sales staff. Everyone thought and gave off the vibe that they were better than me. At least that's how it felt. Then the jazz station up the dial folded and turned into pop music. The guy at the jazz station that did the same job I was doing had seniority, and that was it for me. I left that day, ego severely bruised, I'd never been fired. Side note, the old saying in radio is that you haven't made it in the biz until you've been fired three times. That was my first. I didn't stick around for the other two. Radio is a fickle beast, changing ownership, DJs and formats quicker than you can keep up. But I also left hopeful. Radio was in my rearview mirror. I could do whatever I wanted with my life. I'd do something creative like radio, but with no limitations. Thirteen years later, boom, here we are. Piece of cake. Episode 5. Theater. Of the mind. Before we get into the real reason that we're here, why don't we first get to know how radio got started? The story begins in the late 1800s with a German fella named Heinrich Rudolf Hertz. That name may sound familiar because his last name would become synonymous with electromagnetic waves, and it's the way things are measured in sound kilohertz. That's a thousand Heinrichs. Megahertz? A million. Some quick facts about Mr. Hertz. The first being that he didn't understand the importance of radio waves when his experiments revealed them. He's noted as saying, It's of no use whatsoever. This is just an experiment that proves Maestro Maxwell was right. We just have these mysterious electromagnetic waves that we cannot see with the naked eye. But they are there. When asked what we could do with these awesome radio waves, he said, Nothing, I guess. In his mid-30s, Hertz began to get horrible migraines. Then he was diagnosed with an infection. After undergoing several operations, he died from complications during surgery, which I'm guessing was fairly common back then. He was only 36. He left behind a wife who never remarried and two daughters who never married or had children, which means the Hertz lineage ended in 1975. If you work within the radio business or do a little research into the topic, chances are you will come across the name Guillermo Marconi. In 1894, six years after Hertz found radio waves, Mr. Marconi built his first pieces of radio equipment. This Italian inventor went on to set up a radio link between England and France, invent the directional radio antenna, win a Nobel Prize in physics, create Vatican radio for Pope Pius XI, and, oh, by the way, is credited with saving lives during the rescue efforts of the sinking of the Titanic. Side note, there was room for Jack on the floating debris. She just needed to scooch over a little. The Marconi Company wireless devices aboard the ships were critical in getting rescue boats to the right location. He was supposed to be on the Titanic himself, but chose to depart on a different boat just days before. In the minus column for Marconi, some people believe he stole a lot of his work from Nikola Tesla. He admitted to being a fascist and died at age 63 after his ninth heart attack proved to be his last. While the Marconis, Teslas, and other big names tried to out-patent one another, A Canadian-born inventor named Reginald Vassenden slid in the back door and broadcast the first known radio show on Christmas Eve of 1906. He also sent the first transatlantic transmission, helped jumpstart the concept of wireless telegraphs, and worked with the United States Weather Bureau to help improve the transmission of weather information. I imagine probably up until then you'd have a secretary painstakingly putting together a telegraph, and then by the time it got somewhere to warn of an impending storm, the storm had already rolled through. And the people in that city were like, thanks a lot. It would have been nice to know three days ago. Pre-1920, it was little blasts of information here and there. Radio telegraphs, Morse code. In Paris, things got real fancy around 1890 with the invention of the theatrophone. If you wanted to listen in on a play or musical performance at the theater down the street, you could sign up for a subscription, like Netflix, but not actually anything like Netflix, and eavesdrop on the performance via telephone line. After the whole Titanic catastrophe in 1912, radio really came into its own. All of the science and invention around the turn of the century gave birth to what is known as the Golden Age of Radio. In late August of 1920, a station operating under an amateur radio license and owned by the Detroit News became the first station to hold daily broadcasts. Back then, it went by the call sign 8MK. 101 years later, residents of Michigan know it as WWJ. America's pioneer broadcasting station. Soon, commercial radio stations began popping up all over the United States. Even through the Great Depression, 40% of homes owned radios. And by 1940, almost 83% of homes owned at least one radio. Radio gave you affordable variety in your pre-television day. News, play-by-play for sporting events, musicals, comedy shows, soap operas, children's programming. The boom of television in the 1950s would end the golden age of radio. But its imprint on the world, and specifically the United States, is undeniable. So why is this episode entitled, Theater of the Mind? It's a term commonly used when discussing radio. Think of Orson Welles, in War of the Worlds. Hundreds
1: of cars are parked in a field in back of us, and the police are trying to rope off the roadway leading into the farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. car's headlights throw an enormous spotlight on the pit where the object's half-buried. Now, some of the more daring stories now are venturing near the edge. Now, the siluettes stand out against the metal chains. On. <laughs> One man I wants to touch the thing. He's Come having an on. argument with the policeman. Now, the policeman wins. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've caught it already on your radio. Listen, please. Now, we're not more than 25 feet away. Uh, can you hear it now? Uh, Professor Pearson... Yes. Mr. Uh, can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Uh, possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I say, do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? I don't know what to think. The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial, uh, not found on this earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth, and you can see it's cylindrical uh, shape. A Something's happening, ladies and gentlemen. This is terrific this end of the thing is beginning to flake off the top is beginning to rotate like a screw and this thing must be hollow he's moving that right there
0: freaked out a whole ton of people on october 30th 1938 why because it wasn't playing out on a big screen television or your favorite youtube channel it came over a radio sounding every bit like an actual news report If people weren't listening to the opening credits and came in late, they had no idea what was going on. Everything you had read about or made up in your mind about little green men attacking Earth seemed like it was happening, at least in the theater of your mind. That's the brilliance of radio that I love. To evoke feelings with words, to create images for people who can't physically see what you're discussing, but it's done well enough that they certainly can imagine it. Some of the most beloved television series started off as radio programs. I Love Lucy began as a radio show entitled My Favorite Husband. The Adventures of Superman, Gunsmoke, Ozzy and Harriet, Dragnet, The Lone Ranger. All radio shows first. You may have heard of a little soap opera called Guiding Light. It ran on television for 57 years starting in 1952. Well, that actually began as a 15-minute radio show in 1937. In the summer of 1947... NBC Radio needed a replacement, so they picked up a radio program entitled Mystery in the Air. Each week, actor Peter Lorre would bring listeners stories of the strange and unusual. The show leaned on adapted scripts from the works of acclaimed writers like Edgar Allan Poe and Dostoevsky. Peter Lorre had been in countless movies, often typecast in creepy roles based on his stature and interesting look. He starred in Alfred Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much, Casablanca, and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, just to name a few. In the first episode, which aired on July 3rd, 1947, Peter Lorre and a cast of actors took on one of my favorite Poe stories, The Tell-Tale Heart. Listeners were delightfully horrified while listening to Lorre pull off Poe's demented narrator. Unfortunately, that audio hasn't survived in its entirety. Other episodes from Mystery in the Air are available for download, however. I recommend you give them a listen. So while I'm no Peter Lorre, What do you say we try our own radio production of Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart? We can still have Camel Cigarettes sponsor the show, and I have the list of needed sound effects. Maybe you could set a speaker on your fridge or a dresser or some other boxy object and just sit in front of it while you listen. It will aid in the feeling of being back in the 1940s. Turn the lights down low. Close your eyes if you want. Unless you're driving, then don't close your eyes. All right, let's give it a go. Kids, if you're listening, don't smoke. I am not condoning smoking, nor are Camel Cigarettes a real sponsor of my show. But back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, people weren't as aware of the health issues with smoking. There were drives to get free cigarettes to the people fighting on the front line of both World War I and World War II. Doctors endorsed them. Baseball players endorsed them. You'd see coaches smoking in the dugout. The first season of the Flintstones, that was sponsored by Winston Cigarettes. And at the time, Camel Brand Cigarettes were a major sponsor of many different radio broadcasts. Curator number 135, brought to you by Camel Cigarettes. Experience is the best teacher. Try a camel. Let your own experience tell you why more people are smoking camels than ever before.
1: C-A-M-E-L-S. Camels.
0: Endorsed by doctors everywhere. True. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous, I had been, and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease has sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing, acute. I heard all things in the heaven, and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived it haunted me day and night. Object there was none, passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me, he had never given me insult, for his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me my blood ran cold, and so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man, and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Mad Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded with what caution with what foresight, with what dissimulation, I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it. Oh, so gently. And then, when I'd made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, that no light shone out. And then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room... I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye, and this I did for seven long nights, every night, just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye and every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he has passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man, indeed, to suspect that every night, just at 12, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph, to think that there I was, opening the door, little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness for the shutters were closed fastened through fear of robbers and so I knew that he could not see the opening in the door and I kept pushing it on steadily Steadily I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening and the old man sprang up in bed crying out Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no, it was the low stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well, many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept. It has welled up from my own bosom, deepening, with its dreadful echo, the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him, he had been trying to fancy them causeless but could not. He had been saying to himself, It's nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. Or, It is merely a cricket, which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain. All in vain. Because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence Of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he never saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length, a simple dim ray like the thread of the spider shot from out the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones but I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense? Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury, as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet, I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder. Louder, I thought the heart must burst, and now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leapt into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If still you think me mad, you will think so no longer, when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. (laughs) When I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. For what had I to fear? I bade the gentleman welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room, and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things, but ere long I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness, until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice, yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I rose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the board but the noise arose over all, and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no, they heard. They suspected, they knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think, but anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark, louder, 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 louder. Villains! I shrieked. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed, tear up the planks. Here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. Edgar Allan Poe was way ahead of his time, and while reading his works is frightening enough, imagine hearing that come over your radio after listening to a baseball game or soap opera. We need more radio like that nowadays. Sirius XM is a pretty neat station that plays old radio dramas, but I'd love it if someone started coming up with new shows. Anything to pull our eyes away from our phones for a few minutes every day. I'll make my reading of the Telltale Heart available on its own and post it to the website, Curator135.com. As always, thank you for listening. Please follow me on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on any of the major podcast apps. Until next time, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you.